Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Williams, the pastor of Forefront Church, and you are listening to the Midrash NYC podcast. Uh, We are really, really excited about today's podcast guest, but before I get into that, a couple of special announcements. My good friend Rabbi Daniel Bronstein, a professor over at Hunter College, will be speaking to us about the book of Job. I'm really excited about this because the book of Job, uh, for many of us, is a book that uh, brings great wonder, sometimes excitement, and often frustration. And Rabbi Daniel will be unpacking all of that for us. Uh, So March 1st, 7 p.m., Forefront Offices. You can find out more by going to ForefrontNYC.com slash Equip Course. And now on to the show. I'm excited to introduce to you today uh, a man who has a podcast of his own called Ask Science Mike. He is also part of the Liturgists podcast. We have Science Mike McGarg, and you are going to want to listen to all of this because what he has to say is mind-blowing. Really, his conversation uh, with me changed the way I think about God. You're going to need to sit down for a couple hours after this and just process everything that you hear. It's that incredible. So without further ado, I want to welcome Science Mike. As a church, I think I told you yesterday, we said we're way more interested in asking good questions than having the right answers. Mm -hmm. And so um, really, I think that's the reason you're here. I mean, you're here because you are one of the people that have successfully been able to ask great questions um, without being divisive. So you have one foot in, in science and you have another foot in, in as, as you like to say, like the Christian mysticism. And you've been able to, to blend these together, almost reconcile the two of them. So can you talk to us a little bit about you know your journey in, in being able to live within this tension and, and yet um, really drawing so many people of faith to you at the same time? Yeah, I think um, I think the drawing people was an accident, right? This has all been my desperate attempt to resolve conflicting ideas in my own life that were tearing me up. Um, so I grew up uh, in the evangelical tradition, specifically a Southern Baptist, and I took it really seriously. I wasn't a casual Baptist. I was a <laughs> so, pretty far down the Calvinism road. If people go really sure, inside of baseball, course, of course, yeah. And the thing about that theology is it's based on high degrees of certainty and some pretty specific claims about God. Well, absolutely. And I'm clever enough that um, I could debate conservative theological ideas pretty well even with people that were relatively familiar with science and average familiar with 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 ideas about God. So I could make pretty convincing cases for why these propositions about a specific God or the specific will and a specific plan and um, were, were plausible. Um, but as I got older and as my life started to fall off the map. Um, Holding on to that certainty got tougher. So, you know, I'd basically been taught that the Bible teaches us the best way to live. And if I live according to the Bible, um, then I will have a life of peace, whatever that means. And I, in my own eyes, 
did because from the time I kind of um, started really pulling my life and my career together, my very early 20s, um, from that point on, I got serious about church. I, I committed to my wife and, and marriage, and um, things just went really well. I was really successful at work. I was a leader at my church. I, I was a good husband. I was a good father. And so by the time I was 27, I was a dad, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a corporate vice president. I started and sold a few businesses, and I just felt like awesome. I figured life out. You were certain that God was blessing you. Right. God has told me what to do. I do what God says, and everything's fantastic. Right. Can I ask you, you know, science is such a broad term, but science makes. So this entire time... Things are going well. You're involved in your church, and and yeah, this church is uh, is founded on being certain about mm-hmm. God and God's propositions and everything else. Uh, you know, are you studying uh, you know biology, physics, and all the rest at this point? Uh, and are you trying to make it fit into uh, these neat categories you created? So I would have been what you would probably call um, an old Earth creationist at that period. Okay. So I was still really into physics. I read a lot of Hawking, a lot of Sagan. Okay. Um, you know, I, as soon as uh, Feynman's lectures appeared on the internet, I listened to all of them. Wow, uh, that's impressive. That's, <laughs> that's, that's who I am. But I, I kind of forced it all through the spaghetti strainer of Genesis one. Okay. Right. So. And because of that, I w- it would take me like I would read a brief history of time by Stephen Hawking, and it Did you really read the illustrated version. <laughs> I read the actual like, you know, very heavy I, piece. I of didn't get dinner. any of it until I got the illustrated version, well, and I was all right. I got like dizzy because I was trying to interpret those yeah. ideas through Genesis. So how how were you? I mean, how were you making sense of that? How were you trying to do that? Is there an example or something that? I don't would... know what would be an example? A lot of people do it. So I would look at um, uh, quantum mechanics and the the role the observer plays, right? And then say, well, uh, the universe depends on consciousness. Obviously, the reason there's an objective reality is because there's a single cohesive consciousness that created the universe through word that makes all these wave functions collapse into being. Um, I mostly caught that. Um, sorry, it's still coffee. good enough. Yeah, you, you, you put a little coffee in um, So, uh... Anytime we can talk about quantum mechanics and quantum <laughs> physics, it's going to make you spill your coffee. <laughs> That's gravity. I get really excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gravity. Gravitational force. <laughs> so, just things like that. But it would take me five times as long to understand that material as it should have. And in the end, I wasn't really understanding that material. But what it meant was, as a Southern Baptist, all they loved, I could competently, like any high school kid or kid who was going to college and their physics professor said blank, I could have on the side and say, no, wait a minute. Mm. Here's what science really says. Right? And then I could help people resolve that tension. Only because I had to resolve it for myself. Sure. Now, I was one one way that I very early sort of veered uh, veered from the church is I accepted evolution, for example. Um, but I made a good argument because I said the you know the Genesis says that from the dust we were made, and I'm saying that that's a one verse summary of the process by which 
normal matter became organic matter, became self-replicating matter, and then natural selection shaped that dust into the image of God that can be self-aware. And you create. accepted macro or micro? I accepted macro, but I accepted macro as being orchestrated. Right, that evolution wasn't necessarily just this naturalistic process. Right. It was uh, it was the loom by which God wove life. Gotcha. But God was the one doing the weaving. I always we got really nerdy really fast. I we guess. we did. We did. It's, it's funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna de nerd it for a second and make it just so. But anyway, it's funny because when I think about that view and when I held on to that view, I always picture God as like an orchestra conductor. Sort of waving. You did not denerd it. Waving it. Just a different. Why don't we sing an old gospel hymn for a second? And just as <laughs> you're a Gaither guy, we can get into the Gaithers. <laughs> hey, if this is going, I am. Just my family were Gaither folk. <laughs> I am not a Gaither guy. I want that recorded. <laughs> Record reflects that. About. 0.5% of the people that listen to this are even going to know what the Gaither guy implies. Oh, man. You're making me so sad. Do you so want sad. me to ask my Sagan question, or do you have... You know, you I, I wanted to I wanted to ask quickly before we ask that. Um, you know, you, you accepted evolution, and so mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to make an assumption, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, in your church, I'm assuming that that, that separated you from, from the rest of the community in some aspects. No, not back then. No? No, when, okay. I, was a, when I was a card-carrying probably four-point Calvinist Southern Baptist who accepted evolution, the the point was I absolutely accepted Scripture as inerrant and authoritative. Okay. And so this was a way of interpreting that Scripture. The ultimate source of authority was still the Bible. And I've always been a person who said, I trust that God knows everything. I don't trust that I know exactly what God is telling me. So I always had to insert some degree of grace to hold out for the idea that I knew I was often wrong about this. Sure. Um, and that meant I was able to, it, it, nobody got freaked out or stressed out. I mean, not, we'd have some pretty spirited discussions with some of the older men in the church, but um, the fact that I was an inerrantist and, and, and believed the Bible to be infallible in the Baptist Church, that that draws a lot of water. That right kept though. you that kept you safe, so to right. Speak. You're in the bubble, right? Totally. W- would you say then, even still being in that bubble, that even that that foray outside of maybe this young Earth idea? I don't know if you've ever really hold that, or uh, you said old Earth, but well, I was young Earth as a very young child. Okay, well, so would you would you say that uh, that foray out was that the beginning for you, or was there something else that? Um, and you said, man, I can no longer reconcile this. I, 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 can't, I can't believe what I'm believing. I'm 27 years old. I have kids, and, and everything is going incredibly well. And uh-oh, there's something I just cannot wrap my head around here. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't in the Bible at first. Okay. My dad, uh, who was um, the music minister at our church, um, had an affair and wanted to leave my mom. And he called a family meeting, and um, we'd never had a family meeting, right. so I didn't know what that was. Right. And he kind of laid out this thing of what the heart wants, what the heart wants, and he and mom are still going to be friends, and blah, blah, blah. The problem was he'd raised a good Baptist kid, and I went, this doesn't line up with Scripture at all. So I told, I asked Dad after he kind of did his speech, I said, are you a Christian? 
And he said, of course, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, then your life isn't your own. You don't get to make a call that the heart wants what the heart wants. You have to be obedient to God. And here's what the Bible says about divorce. And I look, and I've always, I'm a kind of a beta male, and my dad is like an alpha, 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 like career law enforcement, former military, uh, football player, basketball player, baseball player, like the opposite of me. He, the stereotypical. Yes. I am the yeah. Yeah. He walks into a room and just everybody goes, that guy's in charge. Like he literally during emergency situations would go meet with governors. And the governor would say, okay, Mike, what do we do? Wow. Right? So that's that's my dad. And right. so for me to have this flip, but I didn't feel like I was, like, taking over. I felt like I was delivering God's words to my dad. So I told dad, because I'd actually done this. I'd had men my age who had struggled with affair or, or, or with attractions to women who weren't their wife who'd come to me, and I'd gone through the Bible with them and helped them save their marriages. So I thought, no problem. You, you had experience. I'll just do that with my own dad. <laughs> It'll work out great. And I'm glad you're laughing because I thought it was really smart. That's the dumbest idea a person can have. Like, that's the, like it's a miracle my dad and I are still friends. And I don't mean because he had a divorce. I mean because of how much I thought in my late 20s, early 30s, I had life figured out. It was going to teach a man in his 50s what was up. I mean, it was just really stupid and obviously doomed for failure. But because I'm a nerd, uh, I said, well, this is a research project. I need to make sure everything I tell dad is what God says about marriage. So I said, no problem. I'm going to read the whole Bible a couple times. And so I, I looked at a yearly Bible plan, and I realized a daily Bible reading for a yearly is not very much because I read very fast. Right. So I said, if I do four days a day every day, I'll have the Bible done in three months. And that means I could read it a few times through this process. So that's what I did. I just decided I'll just read the Bible four times this year. And, uh, and I actually did. And that's when my faith fell apart. Did it fall apart on the fourth time you read it, or the, the no? Third? It was like the first, <laughs> the first time. Like the so, I'd always been a person who prays every day and reads the Bible every day. Okay, um, and as an adult, that's just always been part of routine. And basically, my whole life, I've prayed every day. And uh, I always read the Bible in the context of some tour guide. I'm studying it to teach this Sunday school lesson or going through this study program. I'd never actually just sat down with the thing and just powered through it. That's interesting. So you were always reading uh, almost as an authority. Someone who, oh, always. And so with your dad in this situation, well, I can be an authority to my dad as well. I'm When I'm 27, <laughs> I have the world figured out and I will right. be an authority to him. Right. Uh, I had the world figured out at 13. I know. You're, you're real late to the game. I, we all had it you know, right earlier. That, uh, that may, there may be something to that. Because as a teenager, I never went through the my parents don't know what they're talking about thing. Okay. okay. So you know what I mean? Because I was like, well, I'm a teenager. I keep screwing up things all the time. Mom and dad, generally. They, they, I was such a pragmatist. My parents' lives were successful. Their marriage was successful. Therefore, what they had to say is valid. But now here... As a pragmatist, my life's working pretty well. Dad's life isn't working so well. so well. Obviously, he doesn't have things figured out. Right. You know, so you said, <laughs> I started reading through, and I, I read through in four months. And obviously, you're reading it with uh, a, a different lens in the sense that you're reading it for your dad, who's, in your mind, has, has done this, you know, this, this thing that goes against all of Christianity. 
So when you started reading, what what were the the verses? What was the the thing that? Well, there were a lot. I built an Excel spreadsheet whenever something caught me up. Um, That's amazing. And I got I to like. I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you after I got everyone asked me. I won't share it because if you go to the Skeptics Annotated Bible or something like that, they have more than I have. So okay. it's, it's a duplicated effort. But I had like thirty five hundred items that troubled me. And at first, it troubled me because the Bible didn't reconcile with what I understood through science. For example, in the very opening passage of the Bible, there's a firmament. And I'd never really paid attention to that word firmament. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, the word firm is in there. So I like Googled firmament and realized that in the original language, this referred to a set of plates, interlocking plates, that surrounded the earth and stars were where the light of heaven shone through. And there also the waters of heaven fell through these same holes to create rain. And I was like, the Voyager spacecraft right now is just rocketing out of our solar system very, very quickly, north of 35,000 miles an hour. And it hasn't hit anything, right? There's, if the firmament's there, it's a long way off and it's very detailed because our telescopes resolve these stars as something more than whole. Sure. So that, I said, but okay, that makes sense though. If, if, if God described modern astrophysics to like a dude in the desert 3,500 years ago, you might get something that sounds a lot like firmament, right? It just, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, so I, I said, that's okay. That's probably, you know, that's just that guy's best attempt to, to follow God's inspiration. And then, couple of verses later it says that trees were made before stars and that was a real issue because physics isn't ambiguous that trees are made out of stars right that's that's not controversial science it's not poorly understood the amount of evidence i had in my own life to support the fact that trees were made of exploded stars that's really so I, I went on this whole tirade. I was, was praying as I was reading. And so I, I said, God, you got to help me. I'm just trying to help dad's marriage. And this is really confusing me. And so I felt God telling me that um, he was the authority, not science. And so I could just hold that intention and figure it out later. Okay. It wasn't going to save dad's marriage. Um, so no big deal. So I get to Genesis 2, and it starts talking about creation again. Only the order of events is different than Genesis 1. So God's the authority, and the Bible's the authority, but now the Bible seems to be in conflict with the Bible. So I have to start searching apologetics again. This is day one. <laughs> this is quite the day. <laughs> you know, it's a big day. It's funny, though, because you know, right there, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we just went through this together as a staff. And the big thing, hey, this, is, this isn't this is even the same. It's not lined up. And I think we got to a point yesterday where we were like, what beautiful poetry. Hey, right. Know, what gorgeous yeah. poetry. But that was not from how your I lens, that's not how word. you're seeing it. And, yeah, and yeah. so I looked at apologetics that said Genesis 2 is about the garden and Genesis 1 is about the universe. So Genesis 2, the garden is being populated. But then I was thinking, like, this is God. Like, I'm not a great writer. But if I was writing this, I would have said... Here's how I made the universe. Here's how I populated the garden. Right. Like it just didn't make sense that the most infinite intelligence in the cosmos has kind of a clumsy opening to the most important book in human history. Absolutely. It yeah. didn't grok. So 
I kept reading, and, uh, you know, um, sisters are sleeping with dads, and, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and their dad, they got their dad drunk, drunk, and he impregnated them, and I was like, okay, that's in there, and then... God commands his nation to go in and kill all these people right. in their home territory, including the women and the children and the livestock. Incredible and I was thinking, troubling. if like somebody, if God told somebody that Tallahassee was theirs, and not only would they, I be killed because of my wickedness, but my daughter and my children, stop the truck. Yeah. This, is, this is weird. And... Um, not only that, you know, and I was like, so maybe these people are misunderstanding God's commandment. That got recorded. But then, like, as God was speaking to Moses when he revealed the law, God described the circumstances by which the Israelites could take the wife of a man they killed from another culture into their own home, which was God endorsing both slavery and polygamy by his own words from his holy and divine mouth. Yes, but, and I was, but God is letting her mourn for 30 days. So, you know, that, exactly. that makes it all right. Exactly. That makes it Give okay. Give her 30 days. <laughs> yeah. to God. she's yours. <laughs> yes. You know. So that just seems barbaric, right? So what yes. happened is the more I got into the Bible, the more confused I got, the more I kept trying to research biblical apologetics, and the more I found the explanations in apologetic to be lacking. And of course, since I was doing what everyone in the modern era does when they have a question is I was consulting Google, right. the source of all knowledge and absolutely no wisdom. <laughs> I like I kept seeing skeptics responses as well. And the funny thing was the skeptics responses made perfect sense. Right? If we have a logical problem, the skeptical response is like, yeah, people wrote that and they were wrong. Right. <laughs> and yet, you know, you could still, if you want to, make an argument that said they wrote it, but in some way it's inspired by God. And so I'm sure you're still trying to wrestle with this and say, okay, maybe they were wrong, but maybe God had other plans or other ways to go about this. So are you sitting there wrestling, still trying to figure it out? Or at this point, are you going, I'm done? Well, about, about the second run through, I stopped trying to counsel dad. Okay. Because I didn't really... Because now you needed counsel. It's really... Yeah. The, their marriage was not a real pressing issue to me anymore. Because yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder... God of, the God most, of the universe has died. <laughs> this supersedes... Well, and I wanted to click... So, so I've studied deconversion a lot. Which I've, I realize not a lot of people have done deep study into this. Mm -hmm. And there's not that much research. But there's some... And most people report that they feel like they lose God like that. And that is what it feels like. But what happens is the way humans neurologically conceptualize God is it's this belief of beliefs. So like your belief that a chair will hold you when you sit on it is a pretty simple belief. It's based on the fact that every time you sit on a chair, the chair holds you. But when people know God, the image of God in their brain is not actually a set of linguistic constructs. It's not just their left temporal lobe and their memory interfacing to create that image. God in our brains neurologically is more of a feeling slash experience that is supported by linguistic understanding, conceptual understandings. 
And there are multiple pillars. So when people are going through their faith, the reason our belief in God is so robust is you can have one pillar of God fall down and the other six to 10 that the average person will have will hold God up while you reevaluate that thing. So in order for people to actually leave faith, the majority of those pillars have to be knocked down in succession without being founded on something else. See that, yeah, that to me is incredible. It almost sounds like, I think I might have even heard you say this one time, almost like there are levels to this to this brain or to the way that we, oh, yeah. that we uh, believe in God. And so even if we're knocking out, and I'm being super simplistic, even though we're knocking out God on this top you know, level, we still have, I believe it's the thalamus that holds our core sense of who God is. So that there is something that's strong that, you know, to get rid of that's almost like pulling somebody, you know, pulling somebody away or dragging somebody away from something. That's, that's painful. So to put it in concrete terms. Yeah. Thank you. Because I just, it started, it started with a loss of scripture as inerrant. Okay. And then that God answers prayer in an intercessory way. And you see what I'm saying? I went down, believe. And so I still had God. It's just like, oh, and my own narrative was I'm learning more about God. So I had a buddy um, who uh, who was Methodist, which as a Baptist, I was like, he's probably going to heaven, but uh, maybe. Depends on if he accepts a personal relationship with Jesus or not. <laughs> right. uh, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he introduced me to um, a guy, Rob Bell. So I read a book called Velvet Elvis that sure. actually helped me a lot. And then a, a guy at my church, actually, our youth pastor, turned me on to the writings of a guy named Don Miller. Okay. And um, those books kind of helped me reframe my faith. And I think I probably would have just become like that rare bird, the progressive evangelical, except I, I've always had a lot of friends who were atheists because of my love for science and engineering and technology. And one of my friends said, because I was doing what I usually do, I was passing off some lesson by Rob as my own insight in the conversation. And, uh, and he said, I tell you what, this, what Rob's talking about sounds much more interesting than what you've always told me about religion. I'll read Velvet Elvis if you'll read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Okay. And then we can just share notes. And I'd seen Dawkins on The Daily Show, and I figured I'm already a... Uh, this one of the great scientific minds of Christianity to begin with. Um, I wouldn't have said it in those terms in those days. I'm kind of making fun of old me. But uh, what? What's this? It's not going to hurt me to read Dawkins. And this guy's going to read Velvet Elvis, get saved, and then I'm, you know, I'm going to have sold some Jesus this week. It's a win-win. So yeah. <laughs> it's going to be right. This is just your mansion um, in heaven. Yeah, a bigger. exactly. I'm the bigger driveway, maybe four car garage. Might get in the same subdivision as Billy Graham, you know, so let's do this. And, uh, Becoming all things to all men has now been boiled down to, yeah, I'll read a copy of The God Delusion. <laughs> <laughs> so he did read Velvet Elvis, and I, he he found it refreshing. It didn't make him a Christian, but he said, if, if this is where the church is going, I don't have the same problems to religious people existing in society as I have today. Uh, but... I remember the first chapter of The God Delusion, I was like, this is weak sauce. Like, this book, how does it have so much press? It's all old, tired, worthless arguments. And then I read the second chapter of The God Delusion, and I went, oh, oh, 
So I finished the whole book, and I didn't become an atheist, but pretty much all but a couple of my pillars got knocked down. So I had very little definition other than I believe in Jesus and trust God. That's really all I had left. So and it, then it was Sagan's Pale Blue Dot that... That really did it to you. So listen, <laughs> I, I think, you know, here at Forefront, our staff are all Pale Blue Dot fans. In fact, Travis just spoke a message on Pale Blue Dot. Uh, and I think... Inspired by the liturgy. I think threw a few people into crisis in the process. But, <laughs> Geocentrism will do so, that. So you're going to have to talk a little bit about how that affected you as well. So. Okay. Um, well, the problem is, first of all, Richard Dawkins, um, I'm, one of you said this last night, that I told you you'd hear again so you can hear it today, that like Sagan is Dawkins without fundamentalism. <laughs> right. So like Richard Dawkins is so inflammatory, like the most conservative thumping pastor in the world, that he fires up the amygdala of the opposition. You don't actually really listen to his message as much as defend your position while he defends his. Sagan takes your hand through beautiful prose and says, look at this beauty and wonder and how magnificent things are. And by the way, where's God in it? Do you know what I mean? He doesn't like give you a set of propositions about why you're wrong. He goes, look, we boast these beautiful things, but the further we look, guess we don't find this. But that's not even his main point. His main point is... The cosmos is vast and we are small. Right. But that is so opposite the narrative of we are the special, beloved creations of God. So I'm going through Pale Blue Dot and Sagan is killing geocentrism, which is not specifically even anti-Christian or anti-religious, just anti-human conceit. Right. And he, he, he you know, so he's getting... He's, he's centricity in terms of the earth. <laughs> right. The like thing, like yeah. species, like planet, well, geocentrism is what he calls it. Right. So geocentricity. Um... And he said, so imagine, you know, we know there's lots of stars. We can imagine Kepler wasn't around in those days, but Sagan was a great scientist. So he assumed correctly that the sky is teeming with planets, far more planets than there are stars. So surely some world out there is habitable enough that there could be a civilization on it. Now imagine that civilization is looking out at the sky and imagining the whole universe was created just for them, how much does their position make sense to you on Earth? And you're like, well, not at all, because it's made for us. And you go, oh, wait. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of went through that, and I just, uh, Jenny was out of town with the girls over at her parents' house, and it was like a Tuesday night, Thursday night, something like that, and I sat in my living room alone, with my Kindle and just cried oh. just for hours Yeah, because I didn't know what was happening, but something was breaking in me, something more than just geocentrism. And I went to bed, literally cried myself to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and kind of forgot all about it. Really? And I was doing what I always do. I start, started my day in prayer with God. And when Jenny's not home, that those prayers are out loud as opposed to in my head. And I, I, I was praying and I stopped and said, I don't know why I'm even praying to you. You don't exist. And when I said that, 
existential crisis, like oh, a trap really? door under my feet. And I realized a lot of things and really ra- like I ended up not going to work that day. Uh, I called in sick and I never called in sick if I wasn't actually sick. Um, and, but I realized like, I'm not going to heaven. Nobody goes to heaven. Right? So like my grandmother who recently died, I'm not going to see her again someday Hmm. or my grandfather or, Oh my God, my kids. And not only is there no heaven, there's no afterlife. And not only is there no afterlife, there is absolutely no objective purpose or destiny for mankind. We're a cosmic accident. So even if I'm the best father in human history and I start an amazing lineage of people who heal the world through their actions in some kind of humanist context, in a few billion years, the sun blows up and it was all for naught. Yeah, it does not matter. Like, it's just nothing. I became, I went from like, Baptist to existential nihilist atheist in like 45 seconds from my own perspective. And With, you also lied to your employer and told them you were sick. <laughs> but it didn't matter so, because yeah, sin's so, not a thing. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you, then you went out and bought a pack of Marlboro Lights. <laughs> I really thought, I literally thought about why well, I should just go buy drugs. Yeah. I mean, like it was a crazy, like neuro misfire no operative framework, no moral philosophy. By the time my kids got home, I had to figure out how to operate in the world, how to have a moral ethic, how to have any epistemology. Because then it, my, my skepticism went into overdrive. And it, now, wait a minute. How do we even validate empiricism? The only way to validate our senses is with our senses. We can't know anything. Do I even exist? Oh, I mean, it was... It so, was... Let me. It was a great I, day. It's, I want to interject a question about the the experience of this. Um, by the way, if you're listening right now and your head just popped because you think like I do, I'm so sorry for the road I just sent you down. And, and the funny thing, we're all laughing, and this is like devastating. Yeah. It's really devastating. Yeah, your faith just fell apart. Ah! I want to answer a question about the uh, so about the same time in my life. Um, I was reading Dawkins and Sagan. I don't know if you ever listened to a guy named Dan Barker, president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation, former pastor. Um, I mean, I've heard of him. I was reading through one of his books, and like you said, the 45-second crisis. um, I I was sitting at my kitchen table in Pittsburgh with studying, and I had this uh, same, I would call it this revelation, this eureka moment, like, oh my God, this is all there is. And what was a strange experience for me, the the feeling that I had, the, the emotional feeling that I had in that moment was the same feeling that I had when I accepted Jesus. Mm. It was almost like this... I'm sitting here realizing there is no God and it felt the same as when I realized that there was like what is going on in my brain and um, did you so when you uh, how many years was it that you identified as uh, um, lacking belief in God two two and a half two 
publicly did you have never, a, but sure <laughs> right but did you have a so like a, the the say the classic sagan thing is um one need not insert the belief in a god to experience wonder and mystery about the universe um did you still have that um I think it's what Christians are trying to articulate when they say they feel the Holy Spirit or um, did you still have this underlying, um, was it dark and empty or was it, wow, the universe is grand and amazing and this is all I got right here so I better cherish it? Which way did you pivot? One then the other. So first I had to grieve because God may have been fictional it did not change the fact that God was the being I was closest to in my life. So a divorce of your own, so to speak, in, in some ways. Uh, yeah, except it, understanding it, looking at this from a, a secularist context, an, an, an atheist context, mm-hmm. it was a divorce from part of my own psyche separating yourself separating actually from myself yourself. from myself wow yeah. wow and again that's i think people can resonate with that that's so really it there are brains and it was it was months of depression that yeah. i had to hide and go about like everything um, was okay and and i did nobody had a clue and you're stay, still taking the kids to church and i was thinking about killing myself oh, and God. And didn't just because, like, <clears throat> I didn't want to do that to Jenny and the kids. Sure. But I was so miserable, I didn't even want to live. Oh, boy. Uh, which is a thing, by the way. Statistically, people going through this kind of faith transition are much more likely to end their own lives for a significant period of time, months. So, um, but then, I, basically, I, I split my identity in two. And so I had the public face in my family and people I knew, the Southern Baptist deacon, Sunday school teacher. And then online, I was who I really was. Like, Well, I mean, that's ministry. I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> it was new for me because I'd always prided myself on being the same person in all contexts. Yeah. Not having separate modes, separate things I hide. So, which I've kind of returned to, which is wonderful. But, but back then it was it was, I, I so online I would just go on these like message boards for atheists and just be like, what do I do? <laughs> My name is Ted. <laughs> what? Yeah, well, I actually had like a because um, I was so afraid of it coming back to me. Yeah. I had um, sixty aliases that I juggled. So even on the same site, I wasn't always the same user oh, ID. Wow. And I had written backstories for all of them so I could answer <laughs> from the appropriate context. So like, it wasn't just Ted, it was Ted from Omaha who was a Methodist. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, just like very specific personas. I don't know if this is brilliant or just terribly sad. I, I, can't, I, I can't tell. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. That took a lot of energy. Let's at least all affirm that. (laughs) Man. And then, of course, I had to encrypt those files so no one could get into them. Mm. And anyway, so it was was like, oh, but CIA wants to know I don't believe in God. So stupid. (laughs) But, um, so, but I remember I posted on one forum and I was like, 
okay, congratulations, you convinced me so God, there's no God. Now I have no meaning in my life, and I want to kill myself, and I, just, I don't because I don't want to, like, abandon my family. That's really the only reason I'm here to post is because I don't want to, like, throw a curveball to my family. And this guy posts, and I hate it. This forum went all, offline, and I never copy and pasted his answer. And I, would, I just so wish it still existed. But he basically almost threw a Sagan at me in that he said, okay, you're right, there is no objective purpose to your life, but you still get this one life. So what if it's random? You're here. You have agency. You can choose a purpose for your own life. So if Jesus meant a lot to you and serving the poor meant a lot to you, you can still serve the poor, only now you're doing it because you choose to, and that's even more beautiful. Mm. Like life is more Mm. precious because it's fleeting. And the universe is no less marvelous. It might be more marvelous because it just is. Right? So, and I, I sort of caught the humanist bug. So I'd been an atheist and a nihilist. And that moment, a few months later, sort of put me on this trajectory towards humanism. But what's interesting, I wasn't an anti-religious humanist. Because when I saw my church, I saw a church that fed a lot of hungry people, that funded, um, say what you will about Southern Baptists, but they legitimately pool massive amounts of money that are just ready to go if there's a disaster. They don't have to like call 1-900 or 1-800, whatever, and donate. They just show up. Like it's them and the Red Cross are the first people there. And, And they're not there with Bibles. They're there with blankets and food and water. And and I'd seen, you know, I'd literally seen people with really hardcore drug addiction, like, stop it because they converted to Christianity, yeah. or marriage is healed. And I said, so pragmatically, religion's useful. So as a humanist, I could spend all my time trying to convince people that God's not real and take them on the same depressing journey I've been, or I can call out in Christianity those things that are actually good for humanity, like caring for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Sure. And so I, I pivoted all my church emphasis to justice and action, but continued to serve at the church. And I, I didn't even feel guilty about it. I said, there's already, I already am part of an institution, a multiple the size of any secular institution in my city that does good. So far better for me to just call them out to their best nature than to try to convince them to think like I do. Creating the commonalities. There's, awesome. there's those commonalities. There. That's You're the first uh, atheist I know <laughs> that has done that. Well, but, there, I don't know. I think there might be hundreds of atheist secret agents And I'm, like so, I'm sorry, atheist, because I'm making a giant generalization based on the nine of you that I know. But, but yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. I think right? our churches are full of people that don't believe it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, it's uh, the choice that you made, though, is an interesting one. I have the choice to uh, to go down a different road and, and, and fight against this and look at the, the baggage that comes with Christianity and the church and say this is <clears throat> messing up people's lives. Or you have the option to look at the fact that, it, that it's uh, uh, bringing beauty, bringing growth, bringing flourishing, and you chose the flourishing piece. Was that a way for you... Um, I guess to make peace with the fact that you're still going there, that you're still involved. It probably was. Yeah. It, all my, all my, I had a lot of atheist friends, but they were largely in other cities that I talked to on the phone or Skype or whatever. Yeah. 
I'd go to, when I went to tech conferences, we'd meet up and have drinks. But other than that, the people I knew in my day-to-day life were all Christians and mostly Southern Baptists. And if I were to admit I didn't believe anymore, they might maintain relationship with me, but not as a friend and a peer. I would be a, a project. project. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a project. And I also was concerned they would want me to respond, well, why don't you believe? And I knew I had enough fire that I could convince a significant portion to question their assumptions mm-hmm. just by answering their questions honestly. And I didn't want to do that. Um, so, yeah, it was I just knew if I showed up at church, deacon Sunday school teacher, and said, I don't think God's real, guys, like, it was going to be you just a done massive, that. massive disruption of people's lives. I just love the way that in your in your non-belief how Christ-like you were. I mean, like withholding power, that's that's a big deal. You know, you have the power to really uh, send people off, off deep ends. And you said, no, I'm going to withhold this. I have been blessed in that I was horribly bullied as a child. Okay. And so I know what it's like for people through intention and an action to inflict emotional trauma on someone. And I am always doing my best to never do that to other people. Mm-hmm. Do you think that any of your attitude at that time had to do with or or was inspired by your background as a as a Baptist, as a Christian growing up with the teachings of Christ being yeah. formative in your life? I, do you think that that still remained even though your belief in Jesus as a deity dissipated? Did it still stick in some ways as a humanist? I would piggyback on that, too. I, I was having the same thoughts. Like, let's say you had been raised in India, mm-hmm. and you were um, in a Sikh family. You had the same crisis there. Um, you were raised reading the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas and everything else. Uh, for people are that are pronunciations. What's that? Those are such a... I never... Mention the names of those texts because I oh, cannot say them. They, and you're uh, just like, I was like, so what? Uh, for people, this mad props. Thanks for folks that are listening that are are Christian, meaning followers of the teachings of Jesus, uh, believing in his divinity. Um, how does that distinguish? Had you grown up in India, you could have come to this same conclusion and still be a Hindu. What makes Jesus different about that? Had had you does my question does that question make sense? That makes sense now. Trials? I'm trying to go back into that moment. Um, Every I, so I assumed in... I was a Christian because I grew up in a Christian family. That okay. was my conclusion at that point. Yeah. As I looked at what Jesus taught, so obviously I took away his divinity completely. But when compared to his cultural context, he seemed kind of like an early humanist to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So in the face of an oppressive government rule, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like he spoke yeah. of human flourishing. So I kind of held on to Jesus as an early humanist philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, and by the way, like at this point in my life, I was pretty convinced by the mythicist. I didn't think there ever was a person Jesus. But these assembled teachings seem to have some redemptive... 
humanist value. And the great thing about being an atheist and humanist was there is no like absolute authority other than evidence. So if yeah. there's something in the Bible I like, I can hold to that. It's something I don't like and go, boy, they missed that. And, uh, and that's kind of how I approached it. So when I would study for Sunday school lessons, I would literally filter through the stuff I thought was great and pro-human. And I would really dig into that stuff. And I would just like skip over the things. So like if, if we were taught reading Paul and Paul was talking about not permitting women to teach her authority, I will, you know, I might even not. I would have the students read here, skip that verse, and then read <laughs> the later a, verses. There's a uh, book you might love called the Jefferson Bible. I don't know if you. I read have it. seen the <laughs> Jefferson Bible. That's and I didn't know of it at the time, but um, yeah, that that's basically what I did. Yeah. I'm like that's a great idea. Let's teach that verses Sunday. But because you learn so much about the Bible, disproving it, my Sunday school lessons got better because I knew more yeah. about the historical context. I knew more about the characters. I knew more about who, who this author was and who this author was writing to that my high school senior Sunday school class started exploding because I taught with such passion. Um, I gave the best lessons of my life as an atheist. <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing. So and those kids to this day, like, will come on my Facebook and be like, "That was the best Sunday school class I've ever been in." Still, <laughs> <laughs> are a lot of them still uh, active in in the Christian church or in church yeah. in general? Yeah. So what's funny is I didn't believe, and these high school students would come to me with like their doubts, and at first I would be really afraid because like, oh gosh, what they ask one of the questions I can't answer, but they always ask the like easy questions, like the. Um, let me think of an example. Like, they would ask about Genesis versus science. They wouldn't ask about theodicy. <laughs> right. So, like, Genesis versus science, oh, yeah, I could give a convincing answer on that. But, like, the moral nature of a God who commands children slaughtered. But they never ask that. So, it was all, ironically, I would lead these kids back to a more secure faith without believing. And I even led my oldest daughter to Christ and I, and I didn't believe. Thanks for listening to part one of our Science Mike podcast. Uh, I'm sure that you're waiting in bated breath to hear uh, whether or not Mike uh, resolves his his atheism. Uh, you can find out next week uh, when we'll put up the second part of our podcast. So please stay tuned for part two of Science Mike. Uh, if you're interested in a church that is asking great questions, uh, that is committed to honestly figuring out the life of this Jesus and, and living together in love and pursuing justice and everything else, we invite you to check out Forefront Church in New York City. We have a location in Brooklyn and a location in Manhattan. You can go to www.forefrontnyc.com and find out more. Thanks again, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.